Okay, I'm going to start the session by talking about the Crusades, which is a, a, I've always been interested by that. It's the first crusade happened near the, the last part of the 10 hundreds. The biz, uh, I think, I'm not exactly sure how this pronounced. It's spelled Seljuk, S-E-L-J-U-K, Turks, who were a form of a Brit. Celtic? Celtic? I think those are the Irish. <laughs> the, anyways, this branch of, of Muslims were, were on the doorstep of Constantinople. They were also making it very difficult for Christians to have a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You got the most merit points for a pilgrimage to Jerusalem of any one of the pilgrimages. So this became an important pilgrimage to make. But when the Turks started harassing pilgrims, it angered people in Western Christianity. So when the Patriarch of Constantinople asked the Pope for help, Pope Urban IV had a very rousing sermon in 1098 where he was denouncing the evil of the Turks. He was spreading what people now believe a lot of lies about the way Christians were being treated. Maybe they were true, whatever. whatever. He was stirring up this crowd. And he said, he suggested that they should go on a holy war to reclaim the Holy Land for Christ. And the crowd started erupting, saying, Deus volt, which means God wills it. Pope Urban also granted an indulgence which was complete forgiveness of sins to anybody who died in battle, to who went on, on this crusade. How the indulgence worked, in theory, was that when Christ died, he achieved enough merit to wash our eternal sins away, but he also achieved an infinite amount that could be applied to the wiping away of our temporary sins so that we wouldn't have to do as much penance to pay for our sins, as long as the Pope allowed it. So the Pope now had the power to wipe, to, to grant the merit of the saint, the merit of Christ, to people's sins. Think about how terrible this was. Men, this message for the crusade was aimed at knights who were fighting each other. He thought, wouldn't it be great if instead of killing each other, they were killing Turks? So this was aimed at these, this type of people. Not only are he, is he sending these already men of low morals out to fight the Turks, he's basically turning them into psychopaths, which means they have no concern for their sins anymore, because every one of their sins, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. So these men can now go on this crusade and do whatever they want and receive entrance into heaven. That's the dangerous type of mindset that was unleashed in these crusades. The first group 
of Crusaders were actually the peasants. A man by the name of Peter the Hermit started going to the towns and villages and preaching the wonders of fighting for Christ and the glories that could be had if they conquered Rome, if they conquered Jerusalem. So men who had no training in battle were packing up their belongings, their wife and kids, putting them into the wagon and heading off following Peter the Hermit. Now, remember, these peasants had never been more, most likely, never more than 20 miles from their home. So they had no idea of geography. They had no idea how far Jerusalem was. And every time they got over a city, a, a hill, apparently, they were, is that Jerusalem? Is that Jerusalem? They made it to Constantinople. And when these peasants came into the city, they were in awe. Constantinople at this time was just breathtaking with those fancy ice cream cone shaped domes, gold plated things. There was apparently an amazing palace that had just a menagerie of exotic animals that they had never seen before. They were just amazed. Now when the emperor of Constantinople saw these peasants, he thought, oh my goodness, we can't send these men off they'll get slaughtered. However, when these peasants started rioting and, deme and, and demeaning the city, he changed his mind and sent them out of the city as fast as he could. They made it part way down when they were deceived by the Muslims, saying, you know what, a bunch of other crusaders have already conquered Jerusalem and they are full of wealth and spoils and they're not sharing with anybody. So when the men heard this, they thought, well, we need, I mean, we, we backed up for all this, this money. They abandoned their families, and the Muslims came in and sl either slaughtered the women and children or sent them into slavery. And then the men at this time were fractured, and they were easy pickings. But a little while later, a much more impressive army was sent. They had taken some time after Urban's passionate message and they had assembled the best knights they could find. And they were a pretty imposing army. And when Constantinople saw this, they were so impressed with the majestic force that they saw. Uh, a description of this is given by the emperor's daughter. And she was especially taken by the physical specimen of their general. So they marched on. Let's see if we can see this. Antiochus is somewhere up there. This, this uh, group marched from Constantinople to Antioch. Antioch was under the possession of the Turks, and they wanted to take Antioch before they moved on. The problem was that the people who were in the city had more supplies than the people who were performing the siege, which usually is not a recipe for success. But an Armenian Christian which is different than an Armenian Christian, which comes later. An Armenian Christian opened the gate, was a traitor, and let the Crusaders in. The Crusaders rushed into the city, and the men hid in a citadel. So they still hadn't conquered the citadel. There was still a bunch of Turks in the city. And then the Turks started bringing reinforcements. So now the Crusaders were trapped inside their own city and running out of supplies. 
And a lot of these people were losing hope, they were running out of supplies, they were weak, they were giving up on the whole idea. When somebody had a vision, they said, I've had a vision of the lance that killed Christ. And they thought that would be a powerful relic to have. So they said, we need to dig. And they went to a spot in the city and they started digging and they found a lance, a spear there. And the men rallied around this thinking, wow, this is proof that God is with us on this. And they started worshiping and thanking God and they got all enthused that they, they, they wiped out the oncoming Turks and the ones in the citadel. Uh, when the Turks fled the area, they left 500 women behind. And one chronicler of the event says, he bragged about their holiness. He says, we did nothing evil to the women. We simply ran them through with spears. <laughs> they marched on to Jerusalem and near the end of the 1098th, they, they saw Jerusalem. They were, they were excited, but they, were, they knew they were in for a long siege. The people in Jerusalem were actually a different brand. They were Fatima Muslims uh, in, from Egypt, descendants from Muhammad's daughter, their own branch. They now had control of Jerusalem, and they had poisoned all the wells around the area so that these crusaders wouldn't have access to the resources. But they fasted and prayed. They marched around the city barefoot, claiming the city for Christ. And then they heard about some reinforcements that were coming. So they decided we have to act now. And they tried to scale the walls and they kept getting repelled. They kept getting repelled until one knight finally made it to the top and he held an opening where the, a bunch of knights were able to just come over the fence, the wall, open up the gates. And it was an absolute bloodbath. They just completely destroyed the Muslims, the Jews who were in the area. They locked them up in a church and burnt the church down. Someone said that they were up to their knees in blood, but at least they were up into their ankles. Just Jerusalem was completely flowing with blood from everybody that was... Those, I mean, this, these were psychopaths. And you know, even the best of people, when they find themselves in a riot, they can become animals. And these were worse than animals. That night... These men were completely covered in blood. They went to the church that was in Jerusalem and they had a worship service where they were exultant before God that he had granted them the victory. That is a sorry tale of what misguided principles can cause you to do. And you know what, I don't, I, you can't judge them too harshly. Because given their shoes, I think many of us would find ourselves doing terrible things. It's only but for the grace of God go I. That was the first crusade. The second crusade was really preached, believe it or not, by a man by the name of... Exactly. Thank you, Stuart. What? <laughs> now, Bernard of Clairvaux is still read today as a mystic who preached on God's love and how God's love was the most supreme, valuable thing that anybody can experience, can pursue. And he still inspires people with his elegant words on God's love. He ended up becoming one of the most famous men of the 1100s because he was more powerful than the Pope. It was his influence that was electing popes some of the popes during this time were actually his spiritual offspring. 
In Cluny, the monastery movement became corrupt. Sisters, there was another wave of reformed monasteries known as Cistercians, and Bernard of Clovo was a Cistercian. But he, I believe it or not, was the one who was passionately preaching for the Second Crusade. What kind of a disconnect between this love for God and recognizing the sublime love of God wants you to go kill people. But the Second Crusade didn't amount to anything. The Third Crusade was, uh, I think there's pro it's probably, is it in the charts somewhere what the different Crusades were? Uh, the Third Crusade was 1189 to, to 92. This is the one that's famous because it's the Robin Hood legends are set against the backdrop of the Third Crusade. The Holy Roman Emperor Frederick and Philip and Richard the Lionheart were all on their way to this crusade. Frederick died along the way he drowned. Philip and Richard fought on the way down. Saladin at this time, who was, I say wise, he wasn't a godly person, but he was a wise Muslim <coughs> caliph at the time. Uh, the leader, anyway, whatever his term was called, Saladin. He had recaptured Jerusalem. And he was a very moderate person. He at one point actually offered to have his sister marry Richard so that they, could have a, that they wouldn't have to fight over this. They could, they could form a union. But anyway, Richard and Saladin signed a truce that lasted for three years where pilgrims would be allowed to, to come uninhibited on their site. Now, the Fourth Crusade is even more sad. <coughs> Things were starting to change in the Crusades. For one thing, trade was opening up again. And these Crusaders were bringing back tales of all the wonders that they had seen in the East. Things like sugar, silk, spices, mirrors. Uh, these were things that you just you couldn't get. And once they, they started acquiring a taste for them, there was more stability now. And there was, a com there was competition for trade between Venice, which is somewhere, I, I think, around there, and Constantinople. Venice offered to pay for the Crusaders' way to sail across the Mediterranean. But they, when the Crusaders didn't have enough money, they said, well, you can do something to us as payment. So they diverted them to this area where their goal was eventually to have the Crusaders removed the, the men in Constantinople. The Crusaders removed one Byzantine leader, and then they said, let's forget the Holy Land, let's march on Constantinople. This was around the Fourth Crusade, it was around 1202. They went into Constantinople and absolutely trashed it. Nothing, the, I mean, it, what, what they did to the city was much worse than anything the Muslims would have done according to the people of the time. Uh, they desecrated Haggai Sophia, which is a church of holy wisdom. That did more to break the relation between East and West than, any, than the little great schism had before. I mean, but it, it made sure that it was divisively separated. At the time of the Fourth Crusade was a man by the name of Innocent III. He was the most powerful pope history has ever known. Um, <coughs> he did not authorize this Fourth Crusade. He denounced it, but he also at the same time authorized a Roman bishop to be the, 
Bishop of Constantinople, and he also authorized the Latin leader to be there. The Byzantine Empire recaptured Constantinople, I think, around uh, 50 years later. And then they held it until the Ottoman Turks in 1453 finally took over, and now it's Istanbul, Constantinople. That does the Byzantine Empire for the rest of, of this first half. Back to Innocent III. He represents the height of papal power. Those reformers I mentioned in 1054 would have been in awe at what Innocent III was able to accomplish. He, for example, decided who should be the Holy Roman Emperor, there was, and it resulted in a civil war for 10 years, and then he changed his mind and appointed another man to be the emperor. He had a run-in with Prince John. There was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they were, there was a religious squabble about who should be the Archbishop there. So the Pope appointed Stephen Langton, who apparently is the man who divided the Bible into chapters, to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. John didn't want anything to do with this. But, um, Actually, before I finish that story, I, I just need to tell you about Philip II, the King of France. Philip, the King of France, had his, his first wife had died. He took a second wife, didn't like the second wife, so he took a third wife. The Pope said, you can't do that, and he made, he put France under an interdict. What an interdict was, was, the, was, was a, said that no communion or baptisms could be performed in the whole country. Now for people who this was, these sacraments were the lifeblood of their spirituality, that was a serious deal. So the idea was that they would revolt until their leader capitulated or submitted to the power of the Pope. So Philip did that. He took back his second wife. The third wife ended up dying of depression. And the second wife said that life with Philip was absolute torture. An example of the, the Philip messing in other people's matters because he was the head of the church. Uh, it was also Philip, I mean, Innocent III, who was making claims like, the king and the pope are like the sun and the moon. They're both authorities that God's given, but the pope is like the sun, and just as the moon gets its light from the sun, the king gets the power from the pope. Very ostentatious claims. Back to the story in England. John did not want Stephen Langton to be the archbishop. So he put France under an interdict. And, get this, he declared a crusade against England that was going to be held, led by Philip II. Philip II was all over this. I'd love to. I mean, you, you'll see the there was a, and later there was a hundred years war between France and England. That was partly because... Uh, after William the Conqueror, a descendant of William the Conqueror was a Frenchman. So he was king of England, but he also owned Edward II, or the first, I guess. He owned a lot of land in France. So he's the king of England, but he's also the vassal of the king of France. So that created some tension. Because as king, it's his land. As vassal, it's Philip's land. And that ended up fighting in the Hundred Years' War, which I'll just touch on briefly tomorrow. But anyway, he put all of England under an interdict. And this time, this is the Prince John who sucked his thumb on the robin. <laughs> 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 he said, 
Okay, not only did he give in, he made all of England a fife to the papacy. He became the Pope's vassal, where they were going to have to pay tribute to the Pope for all this time. Stephen Langton, incidentally, was the man who helped write the Magna Carta, and which limited the power of the king. And when Prince John signed the Magna Carta, the Pope actually saw that as treason because it was limiting the power of the king, who was under the Pope. The Pope saw the Magna Carta as limiting the power of the Pope. So that's a glimpse into innocent. Now, he also... i, I got to take a little time to read this. Uh, in 1215, he called a council. There was a Lateran palace that went back to Roman times. And Constantine, as a gift, this one he actually did give, the Lateran palace, to the Bishop of Rome. Uh, I hope it's in my notes. It's amazing. This, this uh, session lasted just 14 days, but this is what all that he was able to to get through it. This, this council condemned three heretical groups, the Waldenses, the Albigensians, and uh, a prophet. It instituted Episcopal Inquisition, which was the start of the Inquisition, said that there should be no new monastic orders. It required that every cathedral have a school open to the poor. It said that clergy must abstain from theater, hunting, and games. The faithful must confess once a year that there would be no new relics without papal approval, said the Jews and Muslims must wear distinctive clothing, made it unlawful to charge for sacraments. He did all this in three sessions, which is proof that this wasn't men of God deliberating over these things. This was his agenda that he just, just rammed through. The next popes kind of lived in the prestige of Innocent III. <coughs> and it came to a head in, around the year shortly after the 1300 when the, the papal power collapsed and I'm going to talk about that tomorrow morning. So that's what was going on with the popes. We already talked about how at this time there was a movement, there was a rise of nations. Before it was men had pride in their their town, their community, who was ever under their, who was ever their lord. But now people started to uh, assemble along national lines. They weren't Englishmen, they were Frenchmen. They were part of the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany. Now, this power of trade started increasing the power of money again. And so the bourgeoisie, which means those from the city, started a new class emerged. These were the wealthy businessmen. Before, there had been people who were powerful because of their land, and there were people who were peasants underneath them. The businessmen were a growing class of people who were powerful because they made money through trading. The kings started siding with the businessmen over the knights. The knights, these businessmen, no longer wanted a, a, a fractured feudal government. They wanted centralized power that could protect them and, and even out currency and provide them money to trade. The Jews were often the money changers at the time because the church said it was against their convictions to perform usury. The Jews didn't mind. Money changers were important because as money started becoming valuable, you didn't know which country had true gold or silver in the country, in the country's currency. So the money changers knew this. The word 
At the fairs, for example, they would time them around England where people would bring their wares from all over the world and they would get a chance. And then they'd kind of move around in a circle to the villages. At these fairs, the money changers would set up a bench. And the, the, the Italian word for bank, banca, actually refers to the bench of the money changers. That's where we get the name, that's why we call it the banks. So along with this stability and prosperity, people started to have leisure time for study. And it was around this time that universities started springing up. Because people had, had time to study. Because the lands weren't constantly getting destroyed by wars every few years, people were actually starting to produce excess food. When people have excess food, not everybody has to spend their whole life devoted to food. They can start taking up other businesses, and it can be a mutual exchange. I'll give you food, you give me your services. So this is what was happening. People were moving to the cities. By the way, medieval towns smelled horrible. Apparently, you could smell them from miles away because they had no concept of, of sewer systems and the houses would go up four or five houses and people just dumped the waste out. It was dangerous to walk down the streets at night. <coughs> but so this was the rise of the scholastics. This was a group of Christians who started to see that reason was important. I'd love to give this the full time it deserves, but up to this point, if you had a doctrinal dispute, all you had to do was quote one of the church fathers, Jerome, Anselm, um, Anselm was one of the scholastics, Augustine, so forth. Some of these early men that we looked at, Ignatius, Tertullian, Irenaeus. But now people started realizing, you know, it's not enough to just quote an authority. We need to start using reason. A man by the name of Peter Abelard wrote a book called Yes and No. In it, he compiled lists, quotes from the Bible, quotes from the fathers, where they gave contradictory answers to a subject. His point was to prove that it's not enough to just say so-and-so says that. You now have to start using re reason and logic to, sh to prove your point. Peter Abelard was a... He had a rough life. He called his autobiography a history of calamities. He fell in love with one of his students, and when she became pregnant, her uncle had him snip-snipped, and he ended up having to live in a monastery, and he continued to write letters to Heloise, his, and they spiritually were married, but it didn't get anywhere after that. <laughs> but Peter Abelard, another thing he's known for is his view of the atonement. His, he said Jesus died as a moral example and that the purpose of the cross was to soften our response to God. It wasn't to change God's response to us, it was to change our response to God. And when we saw how much Jesus suffered, we would be overcome with compassion that we would be more in love with God. That was what Peter Abelard said. However, the church leaders at the time said, rightly acknowledged, it's gotta, the, the crucifixion has to accomplish a lot more than just an example, otherwise it's pointless. And so he was condemned as a heretic. But, you know, even though he, in some ways, was reprobate, the church needs men like Peter Abelard who are asked the tough questions to wake the church up from its slumber, to say, you know what, there's inconsistencies here. Uh, I think men like 
current men like Peter Abelard are people like Brian McLaren or Rob Bell. They're heretics in their own way, but they point out inconsistencies in the church. And I think we would be wise to listen, to not adopt their answers, but to say, yes, you're right, there is a problem, there is a disconnect in our thinking, and search the scriptures and not just accept the status quo. That was not an endorsement of Rob Bell or Brian McLaren. <laughs> just saying that we need men who are willing to ask the questions and stir things up. Another scholastic was Anselm, who ended up being an Archbishop of Canterbury. Anselm lived in the 1060s. He's known for an argument for the existence of God, which is very complicated. Basically, says that the uh, ontological argument, which basically says God is the most is the greatest conceivable being. If you can, the greatest conceivable being must exist, because if you could conceive of a, if it does not exist, it's, it's existence is greater than non-existence. So if you could, uh, anyway, some people get it, some people don't. I'm one of the ones that doesn't. <laughs> but Anselm also came up with the substitution or the satisfaction theory of the atonement. He said, the price a criminal has to pay is directly proportionate to who he committed the crime against. If he, permit, if he commits the crime against a peasant, he'll have to pay this much. If he, has to, if he commits a crime against a king or a feudal lord, there's going to be a much steeper penalty. Our sin is a sin, is a a front, it's a crime against an infinite being in God, therefore an, it's going to be an infinite price to pay for it. So Anselm says we've got a problem. On the one hand, it was a human who committed the crime, so it has to be a human who pays the price. On the other hand, the price is infinite, therefore it has to be a God who can pay this infinite price. For him, it had to be a God-man in order to pay the price. It's interesting, this is, a, this is very much what evangelicals accept the atonement to be. But as a historical note, it was not until then that the church even recognized the atonement of that. And this is why it started coinciding with pictures of a suffering Christ, because he was paying a price, not just a victory. Up till now, the church basically saw the atonement as defeating the demonic powers, either a ransom theory, and so forth, but that's a very complicated subject to get in. The final scholastic that I want to look at is Thomas Aquinas, who became one of the most influential doctors of Roman Catholicism. Just a brilliant man. He, at this time, Muslim philosophers and Jewish philosophers, their works were coming into common currency, and people were wrestling with their ideas, and they thought, boy, how do we respond to this? So Thomas Aquinas wanted to argue against these, using reason, because it wasn't just enough for Thomas to use scripture. Thomas Aquinas apparently was colossally fat. He had one eye that was way bigger than the other. He was very slow when he spoke. He was, his classmates, when he went to school, called him a dumb ox. He, when he was, 
he was six, he went to a monastery for school, then when in his teenage years, he joined the Dominican order, which was a, a, a group of monasteries, uh, of, uh, not of monasteries, of friars whose job was to educate people. He wanted to join the Dominican order, but his family didn't want anything to do with it. So they actually kidnapped him and held him hostage at home for 15 months. They offered him, <laughs> first they tried prostitutes, then they tried to offer him the position of bishop. <laughs> anyway, he escaped, and he started writing brilliant treatises. But something fascinating, <laughs> apparently he was in the office, he was having dinner with King, with St. Louis, who was King Louis around the, obviously the same time because they were having dinner together because it's kind of awkward to have dinner with someone who was, you know, a long, long time before you. But they were contemporaries and apparently in the middle of the meal, he just banged the table and blurted out and said, ah, that's, a that's an argument that will destroy the Manichees. <laughs> sounded like something I would do. So he was, he was writing this colossal apology, a collection of, of, of writing called the Summa Theological. It was a, the summation of knowledge. But he left it unfinished. And he never wrote anything for the last two years of his life. Because he said, I had a vision of God that made everything I've written up till now look like straw. And he, one of the greatest theologians of the medieval times refused to take up his pen because he saw that once you get into the reality of who God is, uh, nothing we can write about it compares. So that was the scholastics. At the uni universities at this time were either teachers getting together in guilds or students getting together in guilds. There was actually uh, a law that rules from this time were for the teacher. That if you skip class, you were marked for truancy. If you didn't attract more than five people to your class, you were fined. You couldn't leave the school without leaving a, a down payment so that you would come back to claim it. And you had to start exactly at the bell, and you had to stop exactly an hour later. And you had to go through all the material. So this was the student saying, <laughs> The students were hiring the teacher, and so they saw that was the servant. Okay. Um, around this time, I, I gotta just briefly touch on this. There are so many fascinating characters. I wish I could spend more time telling you about Saint Louis. He was an amazing king, uh, very spiritually motivated. He fell ill, and he. <laughs> promised God, if I get better, I'll go on a crusade for you, because that was the best thing he could think of at the time. He got better, took his wife and kids on crusade. Unfortunately, on the way, he had dysentery so bad, he, <laughs> he had to cut a hole in his pants and march in the back, something I, I never would have thought of. I told that to Heidi, and she said, at least you could always tell where he was going. <laughs> that, that's Laura's wall Laura Wall's daughter. But he got sick, he came back, but he was someone who was so devoted to God. At night he would spend so much time in prayer he wouldn't even notice that how cold it was getting and his wife would actually have to get up and put a cloak on him. 
He, he changed the laws for the better. They had a trial bore ideal. This is another point about the medieval period that is just so ridiculous. They believed that God was sovereign. So instead of actually testing the facts to see who was innocent, they would have different trials to see if you were innocent or not. In England, they had trial, bore, trial by ordeal. There's four ordeals. One was the trial by cold water, where you were tied up, held with a stick, and dropped in the water. If you sank, you were innocent. <laughs> if you floated, you were guilty. So once they sank, they usually tried to save them, but since they were innocent, they weren't worried about their souls. Another one was trial by dough. You'd have to swallow a large lump of dough, and if you choked, you were guilty. If you swallowed it, you were innocent. Another one was trial by hot water. You would have to stick your hand in boiling water. And if your blisters healed in a certain amount of time, you were innocent. If they didn't, you were guilty. They believed that God's sovereign in, the, in this, and, I, and God's going to reveal to us whether he's guilty or not. One of the laws that King Louis abolished was trial by uh, combat. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine what that one was about. Uh, in these last few minutes, I just need to talk to you for a little while about the mendicant friars. Mendicant means the begging order. Th there was a, a wave of Christians who were really disillusioned with what they had seen in Christianity. There was a movement called the Truce of God, which was, which was an attempt, I think this actually came from Clooney, where they were trying to say which days of the week a knight could fight on. He couldn't fight after Wednesday to Saturday. He could only fight between Monday and Wednesday. He couldn't fight on holidays. And they divided up that knights could only fight each other for half the year. They didn't really care, but there was an attempt to promote peace. I mean, and this resulted in the Crusades. The celibacy that was a reform had resulted in ministers taking concubines and it being mistresses, completely acceptable. In fact, Congregations liked it when their minister had a, a mistress because then he was most likely to leave their daughters alone. That was the height of depravity. And along with this, Christians were becoming so wealthy. At this time, people rediscovered the Gospels and they started interpreting them literally. A lot of people were convicted by that passage. Go and sell all that you have if you want to be perfect. So in so doing this, two orders, St. Francis became who was the son of a wealthy businessman. He denounced all his wealth and was so joyful, his friend said, why are you so happy? He said, I've married Lady Poverty. St. Francis, who's respected pretty much by all denominations, is a different example of, he, he, he renounced the flesh, gave up wealth, but it was different than people who were just trying to torture the body. He saw it as it all belonging to God. And because he said, I own nothing, God owns everything, Francis was able to, he was the owner of everything. So he was able to enjoy fruit, the birds, the animals. He just had such a free spirit. Another, and so he started a group of friars. Friars are different than monks because friars were traveling evangelists. What they tried to do was model themselves after the 70 that Jesus set out, where he said, don't take a money bag, and go out and preach the gospel. So they started taking the gospel seriously, and that was the twin mission. Wander and share the gospel, and to not be encumbered by wealth. 
Saint Dominic was another founder of a, a mendicant order. What does mendicant mean? Begging. Thank you, Heidi. <laughs> uh, but Saint Dominic's purpose was to was more doctrinal. He wanted to witness to the Albigensians. Albigensians were another wave of, monos, of uh, Gnosticism, similar, that was threatening to sweep over. In fact, it had already conquered large areas of France. And they were renouncing wealth because they believed that all matter was evil. In fact, the Albigensians, had they conquered the world, would have ended because they didn't want anything to do with sexual reproduction. They wouldn't eat any meat. They thought that every time you conceived a child, you were creating another little demon. You were entrapping a soul in this evil matter. So St. Dominic had such a heart for these people. But he saw the way the Pope was trying to deal with these people by shows of wealth and power and forcing. He says, That's, they're never going to reach these people that way. So he became... He said, we need to go in there with humility and poverty because that's what they're trying to do and, and win them for Christ that way. And it was quite effective until Innocent III declared a crusade against the Albigensians and pretty much wiped them out. Okay, so we covered a lot of ground again. So basically that was the 1200s. It was known as the high point of medieval of the, the high point of medieval times because there was stability in trade. The nations were rising. Uh, there was a wave of spirituality with the mendicant friars. People were hungry for God. Architecture at the time is buildings that are, are, are craning and straining for God. They had flying buttresses that were a new uh, technology that just made it look like these buildings were soaring. So the picture of the 1200s is men striving for God and being so pleased with this high point. And in the 1300s, it all came crashing down with corruption, the plague, wars, the papal office went in and it left, the, it left the world dark and in need of reformation. So we're going to look at that collapse tomorrow. Time for the final quiz.